Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. Okay, so let's jump right in. Let's uh, start by having you introduce yourself. Sure. Um, hi, thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Aaron McDonald. I'm an astrophysicist and the science advisor for the Star Trek franchise. That's so cool. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you discovered Star Trek when you were in college, and it made a big enough impression on you that you credited Catherine Janeway in your PhD dissertation. And we're big fans of, of Catherine Janeway here because we're only about an hour north of her statue. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So what is it about the character of Janeway that, that spoke to you? Yeah, it's funny, you know, you it's one of those things that these characters or people, you know, regardless of whatever medium come into your life and they hit you at just that right time. And sometimes you don't even realize why until later. And I think for me, Captain Janeway, you know, at the time she provided me a lot of like mentorship that I really needed. I was going through graduate school, which is hard in its own right. I'm trying to do my Ph.D. and and uh, and I never really had a woman in my field that I was working with directly that I felt encompassed the type of professional that I wanted to be. And in the sense that you look for these different mentors through your life. But when I saw Captain Janeway and just how she interacted with her crew, the way she approached problems, just her, you know, her embracing of the fact that, you know, she's a woman, but she's in charge and no one's going to question that. I was just really drawn to it. And so she really did just become a mentor for me. You know, now I look back on it and I realize in addition to all of that, I really was thousands of miles away from home and, and Voyager, you know, was going through sort of a similar journey that they were isolated. They're trying to figure out their own path. And so there were a lot of parallels to my life at the time that I think is why I was so drawn to it. But I really, you know, I still identify so much with Janeway and just all of her leadership skills. And she embodied the type of person, professional woman that I want to be. Your bio describes you as a tattooed bisexual one woman career panel for astrophysics. <laughs> You've done a lot of different work in the sciences from trying to detect gravitational waves on the crab pulsar to analyzing data in the aerospace industry before getting into your focus, your current focus on science communication. So what is it that made you want to go towards science communication and away from research and academia? Yeah, I, you know, when I went into academia, I really didn't have like a career goal. My only career goal was to become Dana Scully. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I loved just the idea of being able to go to a university and just study space. You know, I was fascinated by space and the idea that I could go for four years and then I still was in love with it. So I went on to do a PhD, but in none of that time did I ever have my eye on academia being my lifelong career. So once I finished my PhD, I was a little bit lost. And one of the things that I did was I started, um, I started acting because I used to be on the stage when I was a kid as a dancer and I really missed being in front of people. And I did an interview right after my PhD and it was very obvious that I had not spoken to a non-scientist in like <laughs> four years. <laughs> and so I, that was a little bit of a wake up call for me of like, okay, girl, like you need a hobby. Like let's, <laughs> let's go 
step out of the lab. Let's step away from the computer and let's go find something to do. And uh, there's not a lot of classes for former dancers out there just as a hobby. So I found an acting class and I really, really enjoyed it. But it really taught me a lot of confidence and stage presence and reminded me how much I enjoyed being on the stage. And then combining that with the teaching that I was doing as part of my academic career, I just really found that I have a passion for explaining science to a variety of audiences. And as a sci-fi fan myself, I particularly enjoy uh, talking to other sci-fi fans and using that as a reference point to teach all of these complicated science ideas to people. Your bio says you were the first woman to work as a researcher in your department at Cardiff University. Um, how did how did that influence your education in your early career? Yeah, so this was right after my PhD. It was a postdoctoral assignment. And I just want to clarify, too, that I wasn't the first woman researcher in the department, but in my specific research group. So these departments are broken up into different research groups. And I was the first woman postdoc that they had um, in their gravitational waves group. And it really did... Um, it influenced me in a unique way. Thankfully, I was very lucky that I was in a very supportive environment. There were a lot of women who were still like doing PhDs. And I say a lot, there was a handful of women, but there's a, only a handful of researchers anyway, um, doing their PhDs. And so I wasn't totally isolated, but at the same time, um, it made me realize, I guess, so while I was at Cardiff was when I was doing these acting classes and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I think the biggest impact that that had on me was it sowed so much doubt into the idea of leaving academia because I felt like my role was necessary to show younger women that they could be a scientist and they could work in academia. Um, and I expressed that to my mentor, my uh, the professor I was working for. And, you know, he was incredibly supportive and understanding. And he really did, like, we almost talked through it together, like what me wanting to leave academia, what kind of impact that would have on their research group, what impact that would have on their students, and then how he can continue to be an ally for women, non-binary, just underrepresented folks and, uh, you know, and try to carry that on without me having to carry that burden and, and freeing me up to leave academia. Now, I've gone on a whole journey since then of realizing that, you know, you don't you don't have to be a woman academic professor to inspire future generations of scientists. There are lots of avenues to do that. But that was certainly a lot of pressure that I felt at that time. And for anyone who's been in academia, they can probably relate like a not not a lot of people. You have to remember people who work in academia professionally, most of them have never left like they've never <laughs> been outside of a university. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding of what's actually out there and what job options are and different avenues to do what we do and do what we love. Yeah, if you, you get to the end of your Ph.D. and you like went to school at five and you that's all you've done, I can definitely see that would be a, you know, a, a unique lens on the universe. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many professors who have done it perfectly happily their whole lives. They're like, mm -hmm. why would you leave? This is perfect. Like, <laughs> And it's scary and dark out there. But no, I mean, I, I'm very grateful for the sort of path that I've taken since then. You have created a course on the science of science fiction, and that course is available on Audible. 
So what's your favorite example of science that the science fiction got right? Ooh, oh, so many good questions. <laughs> so my favorite example, uh, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, just the fact that warp drive is mathematically possible is still always exciting to talk about. Um, I think one of the things I particularly liked was um, in Battlestar Galactica, they had this idea of the red line. And they just mention it a couple times when they're doing their faster than light jumps. So for those people who didn't see Battlestar Galactica, you know, they 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 do what they call spooling up the FTL drive. And basically it's saying, OK, I'm at point A. I want to go to point B, which is a number of light years away. So we're going to fold space time to us, fold that point B to us, cross that now much shorter distance and then unfold it. And we are where we wanted to go. And so that's why they call it a jump drive. And so as they're spooling it up, they're kind of pulling point B to where they are. Um, but one of the things that they mentioned is this idea of a red line. And I love this concept because the idea is it's not that you can't go much further, but your certainty for where planets and stars are <laughs> and where you're going to end up starts to drop off the further away you are, right? Because we, as we look up into the night sky, we see stars as they were when they sent the light to us. We can estimate where they are now, but chaos theory is always going to have some uncertainty to it. So you can say as, you know, the further out you're going, a few light years, you're like, okay, I'm 99% sure everything's going to be where we expect it to be. Little further out, 98, little further out, 97. And then this is a military, right? So they set a limit and they're like, okay, if you're not like X percent sure of where everything's going to be, that's your red line. And that was just like such a thoughtful rule to impose that really makes a lot of sense and does utilize like a lot of statistics and chaos theory and science behind it. That was really nerdy answer to your question. <laughs> that's uh, that's kind of what we specialize in. <laughs> it's really nerdy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So wait, does that mean, I mean, you said warp drive is theoretically possible. Does that mean that the Battlestar Galactica version of FTL drive is theoretically mathematically possible? Yeah, so any of these, so yeah, jump drives, um, warp bubbles, wormholes, all of those manipulations of space-time are theoretically possible but that theoretically is bold italicized and underlined and it's basically just saying like the physics and the math understanding that we have of space-time says it can be done <laughs> but whether or not we should and also we just do not have enough energy that's really our big limiter to manipulating space-time is that we are so far away from harnessing even close to the amount of energy it would require for us to manipulate space-time. That's going to have to be the big technological advancement that we can't necessarily see coming before we can start thinking about doing it. That's really cool. <laughs> so what is your favorite example or maybe a surprising example of science that science fiction gets wrong, that people think is right, but it isn't? Yeah, um, this is a great example, actually, and it comes to mind immediately because in The Martian, uh, which I know a lot of people have seen, it very famously kicks off with Mark Watney getting stabbed with a broken off satellite during a storm on Mars. And we have mostly all heard of 
the fact that there are dust storms on Mars, that dust storms kick up and sometimes they last a long time. And sometimes we've lost rovers because of that, because their solar panels get covered in dust and then we can't communicate with them anymore. And so this idea of dust storms has always been a thing. And so they folded that into the story of the Martian as like the inciting incident that knocks off his life, you know, sensor readings and leaves him on the surface of Mars. But what's really important to know is that, yes, there are dust storms on Mars. Yes, there is an atmosphere, but it is 0.6% of the atmosphere here on Earth. So when you go to a science museum and you create a vacuum in a little vacuum chamber, that's almost like the best, like... Uh, thing that you would get um so it's 0.6 percent of what it is here on earth which is if you go to a science museum you could only like when you use one of those fun little kid vacuum chambers and you make a vacuum out of it that's the best it's gonna get is about 0.6 percent what it is here on earth so the big point and the reason i bring this up is that Yes, there is an atmosphere, but you're never going to feel it because there's not enough air pressure to actually push on you. There's not enough air pressure to actually knock your satellite over. Um, but the author of The Martian, Andy Weir, said that that was a very conscious decision of his to break and get the science wrong because he didn't want the accident that stranded Mark Watney to be the fault of any of the astronauts. So he was trying to create an environmental disaster that could kick off the story. It is out and out wrong. <laughs> it would never be threatening to push over a rocket. It would never threaten to break off a satellite because you just would never feel it. Um, and the reason we see the dust storms, just to note, in case anyone's wondering, is because the texture of the dust on Mars is like baby powder. So it doesn't take much to knock it up. And then it just takes a while to settle back down. It's funny, I went to an Indiana Sciences book club a couple of six weeks ago or so, and uh, Dr. Caldwell from Purdue was talking about the Martian and he brought that up also as nice. do not even get me started about all the things that are wrong. <laughs> and you know, that, <laughs> so it's funny that you use the same funny. example. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's one of those like, you know, you got to appreciate the storytelling always does have to come first. And so sometimes you do make those concessions. And I, th I still personally think that that film ignited a big interest in the public for humans going to Mars. So I think that's great. Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite science fiction books is The Sparrow by uh, Mary Doria Russell. And it's an older book. It's 22 years old or something. Um, but she talks about meeting, I think it was Ray Bradbury or something, and having him say, you got some of the physics wrong. And she's like, yeah, but you get the biology wrong all the time. So, you know, like I did that, wow. I did this, I got this right and this wrong and I knew it, but. <laughs> I like, love that, that's so funny. <laughs> um, so one of the places that you teach people about science is science fiction conventions. And I found an interview where you talked about that being one of the ways you've connected with people in the entertainment industry. And that that story has a you know special place in my heart because of Starbase Indie and you know what our convention chair last year talked about how conventions are a place where uh, we create a space where magic can happen and creating connections is part of that. Um, so, what are some of the most ex memorable experiences that you have had at conventions? Oh goodness! Um, oh, so many. So I got my start going to DragonCon initially. Um, just as a fan, bunch of friends from 
college wanted to have a reunion somewhere and we picked Dragon Con. And uh, that's where I started giving all these talks. But as my talks got more popular, I started giving them at different places. And it was probably about three or four years, probably around this time I first went to Starbase Indy as well. Um, I was giving a talk as like an invited panelist in Denver. And uh, it was the first time that Kate Mulgrew, who played Captain Janeway, was also going to be at the same convention I was at. Now, I had no affiliation with Star Trek at this point. I was just working as an engineer, going to go give these toxic conventions on my own dime on the weekends. And, uh, and I was like, oh, no. So I brought my thesis. I made sure that there was time in my schedule and her signing that I could go just straight up stand in line and get my dissertation signed by Kate Mulgrew. And again, it, it says that the dedication that uh, to Captain Catherine Janeway, like she'll never know how much motivation she gave me right when I wanted to give up. And so I go up, I stand in line, I'm shaking like you wouldn't believe. I kind of opened my dissertation to show her the page. And I was like, this is my PhD dissertation in astrophysics. Um, can you please sign this page? And I pointed to that moment. And she was like so blown away. She couldn't find the words to say anything. I was in front of Kate Mulgrew, which if anyone has ever met her, she has a presence about her that causes you to uh, shut down. <laughs> I guess is the <laughs> best way I can put it. Um, so we just kind of stood there silently for a little bit while she thought about what to say in this monumental moment because she realized it was tangibly sitting in front of her like how big of a deal this was and she wrote something very lovely in there and then I told her I was getting a photograph with her later at you know these photo sessions and she said okay good I'll see you then bye and I think I said goodbye I don't remember <laughs> I was blacked out um and I went and I cried for like 20 minutes and then I went and gave my talk <laughs> and, I, uh, and then I went to go stand in line. And again, if anyone's done these photo sessions, they are much more of like a cattle call. Like you're in, you take the picture, you leave. You're in, take picture, leave, in, take picture, leave. You don't have that moment to really even try to convey any emotion with them. But she remembered who I was when I walked in and she put her arm around me and we took a picture together and she just said, I just want you to know that I'm very proud of you. And that was all I needed. <laughs> so, so that was really great. Um, I think the only other really, I mean, I've had a lot of fun, weird experiences, especially as I've gotten into the fold in Star Trek and sort of worked with a lot of these actors over and over again. But um, I do remember the first, I think it was the first Star Trek Las Vegas I went to when it was an official event. Kate Mulgrew was there again. It was only the second time I did have a chance to have her sign that picture that we took. And then as I was sitting, I had just given a talk in Vegas at the official Star Trek event. I had just seen Kate Mulgrew again. I'm surrounded by emotion because this was a big deal for me. I'm sitting in the back of the theater trying to compose myself. And that's when Alex Kurtzman came out and surprise announced that Picard was coming back and that Patrick Stewart was like there and announced it. And of course, people were like flooding into this hall because it was a total surprise. And the emotion in that room, I just started weeping, just openly, like could not compose myself, Sh shoulders shuddering, like full on weeping. 
I know I wasn't the only one, so I don't mind sharing that. Uh, and then I decided to go get a tattoo <laughs> at the casino to commemorate that moment. <laughs> so I got a tiny little $50 Delta badge on my shoulder <laughs> from that experience. Okay, that's an amazing story. Yeah, I'm sure you were not the only one. Because uh, Picard coming back for, I mean, I think a lot of people, that was, you know, next gen was where we came into Star Trek. Yeah. Um, I mean, that certainly was for me. And so, uh, yeah, that that's very fantastic. It was a, it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And so now you are in the fold now. You've been the science advisor for the entire franchise for, what, four years since 2019? Yep. Uh, so what are some of your favorite examples of the science that you helped to get included in, in Star Trek canon? Ooh. Um, so the first one was the first job I ever got, even before I was for the entire franchise. I was just hired to work on season three of Discovery alongside our good friend, Professor Muhammad Noor, mm -hmm. um, to help with the science of the burn. And my first assignment was basically like figure out the physics of the burn and how that would happen to dilithium. So it really was about adding an expanding cannon to dilithium. And I took that so seriously because as my I mean, I take it all seriously, but I the weight on my shoulders because I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm writing like canon for how dilithium works. I went back and watched every reference back to 1966 of dilithium, which, again, just to clarify for people is fictional, does not exist, totally made up for Star Trek, but it has existed from the beginning of Star Trek. And um, and so I went through and I did a ton of science on it. And that was just a really, you know, it made it into like one line of dialogue in the whole thing. But just working on that was really special. And then Professor Noor and I were able to write an article for StarTrek.com that actually explained all of the stuff we put into it. Um, and then the other fun thing for me has been working on Prodigy uh, for many reasons, not just because I'm writing, you know, lines for Captain Janeway, but um, <laughs> but uh What's been fun is because they're introducing people to Star Trek. They're introducing kids to Star Trek. I've been able to very concisely define how the things like transporters, uh, holo like the holodeck, how all of those things work in just, you know, where Star Trek has kind of alluded to them over the years. And I think at one point when they're in the holodeck in the back of season one, um, Rock Talk is explaining how it's working and she's like, it uses visual, uh, virtual horizon manipulation and like motion tracking sensors. And I had pulled that from like offhand things in the uh, technical manual that had again, never been said out loud, but are now officially part of the Star Trek canon. So <laughs> that's just really fun for me. It's gotta be a cool process doing research on something like dilithium, which doesn't exist. So you're going through and seeing what's been said about it and then mapping it to what we know about science. What is that process like? Yeah, so the first thing is to go through basically everything that Star Trek has said about whatever I'm I'm working on, in this case, dilithium or holodecks or any or transporters as well, and then trying to come up with a science explanation surrounding that, surrounding what's already existed. 
and then map that into whatever we're taking from it forwards because the most important thing is not to counteract anything that's already been said before and i know there's a lot of leeway given for the you know the original series because people understand that it was a long time ago before we even landed on the moon you know so scientifically they give a lot of leeway to the original series but i try to make it as consistent as possible but it is, I mean, I, I own all of the sort of behind the scenes Star Trek stuff that, you know, I try to go through any explanations that have been given, you know, even if it's not quote unquote canon because it hasn't been said in the shows, a lot of these are still written by people who are working on the shows. So it gives me the insight into what they were thinking. And then I'm able to kind of apply that. And the most important thing for me is just to not contradict any known science that we have now i'm not gonna say you know some physics thing that we know right now is physically impossible i'm not gonna use that as an explanation for something that we have in star trek i'm gonna try to find a workaround or like in the case that they did with next generation is that you have the heisenberg compensator in the uh transporter it work. It compensates for Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which technically is why transporters can never work, but they compensated for it eventually. <laughs> so at least coming up with a time where we can acknowledge that we're breaking physics and finding the right way to talk about that. It's a little bit tricky. Yeah. So, okay. So we've said warp drive is theoretically possible. Transporters aren't theoretically possible. What about some of the other Star Trek technology, like replicators or holodecks? What's 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 out there already or coming down the pikeway and what is just never going to work that way? Yeah, I mean, the two that you mentioned, I think, are the ones that we're the closest to. And really, I mean, if you go back to the 1960s, we have a lot of that technology that was futuristic, you know, at that time. I mean, these, you know, video conversations that we have, I remember seeing that, that, you know, Kirk's in his ready room, you know, making a video call to McCoy in the medical lab, and he pops up just like a Zoom conversation. <laughs> and um, and so we have that now. We had flip phones are now outdated. And so, you know, so already we have a lot of advances that have been shown in Star Trek. But I do think things like the closest that we are are holodecks, some form, which I'll get into, replicators and tricorders. And I think tricorders, especially because it is one of those like necessity pushes invention situations where we have a lot of diseases going around that are easily communicable that you want to be able to diagnose with the least amount of sort of physical contact possible and so um the the idea that that necessity would drive maybe less invasive medical assessments i think is possible the replicator thing i think is interesting because we've made so many advancements in 3d printing in the last decade um you know i own a 3d i own a resin 3d printer and if you told me five years ago that i would own one and it would be the size of a you know large shoe box and sit in my closet yeah i wouldn't have believed that and uh and that in parallel with all of the research that we're doing into synthetic food um you know the idea that now we have these things like impossible meat and beyond burgers and all of those mm -hmm. is because they were able to isolate the protein that makes red meat taste like red meat 
And so those types of research, if we're able to eventually combine our 3D printing technologies with that synthetic molecule research, uh, we could get something like a replicator. Of course, you know, anything that we're going to see in the next 10 years is going to be, it's going to take like seven hours to print components for a burger, but <laughs> but that's something, right? It, it takes these steps to get there. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I own a VR headset and there are times where I feel like I'm in a holodeck, even if it's not fully haptic, that I'm not getting all the sensations. I'm not physically walking around, but I have certainly ducked down and thrown uh, what is it, some Star Wars weapon so hard that I uh, I slammed into my bedpost and broke my finger. <laughs> oh, no. I was so worked up during this <laughs> battle <laughs> on a space station in a Star Wars VR game that I, I a thermal detonator, that's what it was. I grabbed a thermal detonator and I hawked it like I was pitching a baseball <laughs> and right into my bed frame. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> we're could have used You could have used that holodeck mechanism that doesn't allow actual injury to happen. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The safety protocols. I wasn't mm -hmm. able to really have those engaged. <laughs> uh, I mean, according to the episodes, they break pretty regularly. In English, exactly. So. <laughs> it's just an on-off switch, really. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not even a two-factor, like, are you sure you want to turn these off? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you had a cameo in Star Trek Prodigy the first season, and you had a character named after you in Lower Decks. So which one, what do you like more, being the character or seeing someone else be a character that's named after you? <laughs> so so we've created a Dr. Aaron multiverse situation and uh, not just me, but the other writers, we've all confirmed that it's the same Dr. Aaron being referenced, <laughs> which did break kind of a lot of the fan like Wikipedias and stuff to try to figure out Yes, it's Aaron playing herself, but she's a version of herself. It's Starfleet, but she's voiced by Dr. Aaron. <laughs> so it like broke the whole thing. But yeah, so it started in Lower Decks, the end of season two. Uh, they decided it would be funny when Lieutenant Kayshawn uh, suggests that they warp past all the debris field. And I had worked a lot on that episode to try to help them do what they wanted for the end of the finale of season two. Um, when they were in the booth recording it, they were all going to like just shout nonsense at Lieutenant Kayshawn. And they had the idea to just have uh, Fred, Fred Tadjascore, who plays Shax, to shout out, Dr. Aaron said we can't do that. <laughs> and you can hear him saying it if you listen closely. So that was the first instance of Dr. Aaron becoming a thing. And then... Um, and then in Prodigy, yeah, it was a it was very emotional for me because as we had talked about me struggling with leaving academia to uh, feel like I wasn't able to mentor students and kids anymore. One of the big things with that was when I first started working on Prodigy, that's when I realized what I actually wanted to do with my life took that long, but was to be a TV writer, was to write Captain Janeway and Dana Scully and these characters that would inspire people to become scientists because that's how I became inspired and so when they were writing the finale and it was an opportunity for the kids to meet people at Starfleet and kind of you know become and and officially enter Starfleet 
and figure out kind of what they wanted to do. I had done a lot of work on helping shape the character of Rock Talk, who's a young girl who gets really into science. And a lot of her was kind of based on my own stories of myself as a kid. And so they were like, well, she has to meet Dr. Aaron. And so, so they wrote it and I got to voice it. And that was, it's incredible. It's still, I still get emotional thinking about it. It's the, it's not even the picture of like seeing myself as a Starfleet character, which is like freaking amazing in the dream, I think for anyone. Uh, it's actually the image where Rock Talk is looking at me with such genuine, like, fascination and excitement in her eyes that I just oh I get so emotional about it <laughs> but yeah it's just I'm really touched for the Hagemans to <clears throat> consider me for that and then it turns out it's only been me and Stephen Hawking who have played ourselves on Star Trek <laughs> and he played a hologram version of himself I played a weird I guess descendant or maybe I'm like a cue or something where i'm playing myself but in starfleet the computer projection maybe right. we download we download your intellect into a computer because we can't lose you that sounds right that works that works and i just live at starfleet academy in perpetuity i'm okay with that i mean that this appears to be your zoom background <laughs> yes, this is true this is true yeah i have my zoom background as the a Starfleet Academy office from Star Trek Online. <laughs> and I love it. It is my office in my mind. It is. Yeah, it's a fantastic background. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so during the pandemic, you started a production company, as apparently one does, um, <laughs> called Space Time Productions. And it's devoted to developing and producing film projects that lift traditionally marginalized voices and provide representation in front of and behind the camera. We were delighted to air uh, your first film at Starbase Indy last fall. And it's won several awards in just a couple of months. It's been out in festivals. Yeah. So, um, so first, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I'm dying to see the whole thing. I got to watch about 20 minutes of it and then someone needed me and I had to leave. So oh. I'm like, I told Maddie, I'm like, please tell me when I can see it online somewhere. I really want to see the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, so what has been the most surprising part of starting a production company? Yeah, a lot of it was done from necessity. It was originally done from necessity just because... I was working with Star Trek for a couple of years now. I was starting to consult on more film and TV projects. And I was like, I should probably like be a grown up about this and, <laughs> and start my own company. And the new labor laws were requiring like if you made X amount as a freelancer, like you had to be a company and not an individual and all of these things. So uh, so I started it because they told me to. <laughs> and then. And then I was having this conversation with Mary Chifo and, and her girlfriend, Maddie. And um, and we were like, you know what? Like, we were all kind of a little bit frustrated with our positions in the industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the entertainment industry, you know, is 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 brutal and it takes a long time for things to happen. So we were like, let's just start making our own stories. And I now have this company that I've filed and can be like official with. And so I started learning the production process and it was something I'd always been interested in because when I worked as an aerospace engineer, I was like a, a manager 
And so I was very comfortable leading teams, doing administration, managing budgets, all of those sort of things, managing timelines. And so I was excited to kind of learn about doing that in the film industry. And then we all were learning just how does one make a movie? And we've realized over the years of being in Hollywood, like that's really how you cross over that line and become really seen as a working professional is being able to have this litany of good quality short films that you just kind of make yourself. And, um, and so that's just been an, an absolute delight. I've discovered, I really love producing. Um, they tell me everyone I've worked with has said, I'm very good at it. And I trust them because I'm only on my second film. And so I'm kind of making it up as I go, but again, I have this skill set. I know what needs to be done. And so I just do what I would have done in engineering and people apparently really like it. Send a lot of emails. I coordinate a lot of meetings <laughs> and I stay on top of things, keep moving things forward. Um, but one of the surprisingly most rewarding things that I get out of being a producer is being able to hire people who are just on that cusp of really making it in the industry. And I'm not saying I'm giving them that opportunity, but they feel seen. They feel like these are projects that they really want to work on. Um, you know, I try to assemble a crew every morning. The previous film was awarded a parody and action badge from women in media because we had more than 60% women on the crew, 10% gender non-conforming crew members. And most of us were all LGBTQ um, in the family, <laughs> as it were. And, uh, and I really enjoyed creating that environment and giving that opportunity and then especially for these, you know, LGBTQ creators to be able to work on stories where they are feeling seen and in a genre like science fiction where they're typically not seen. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Well, and it's interesting that you say they're typically not seen in science fiction because a lot of those concepts have historically shown up in science fiction early because it's almost it's safer to do it with aliens, right? Yes. Right. And and so that's an interesting paradox that these things are explored in science fiction, but it's still possible to feel invisible if this is your lived experience in the right. real world. And I think it's because it's it's coded, right? Like you said, it's always been sort of aliens and it's been analogous to maybe that uh, culture, or that experience, but it's not just people seeing themselves, being themselves and have it not be necessarily the focus of the story it just is who they are you know and so um so i really like giving that opportunity where we're not we're not creating i mean science fiction is always allegorical but at least when it comes to representing lgbtq characters and stories that just happen to include them they you know they're able to be seen just as whole complex beings yeah, that's a good distinction um, that these are just, it isn't the driving force of the character. It's just a thing about the character. And that's becoming more common now, but it certainly hasn't been historically. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so I'm in pre-production now for the next film. Um, it's been announced. I'm, I'm producing a film called Identities with a YouTube commentator named Jesse Earl. Uh, most people might know them as Jesse Gender on YouTube. 
Um, but she wrote and is going to direct it and it's going to be a Nebula original. So the Nebula streaming service has kindly supported us making this film and it'll be distributed on there when it's done. And, uh, again, it's, you know, um, it's just really exciting to start bringing these stories together and to be like on to the next one. And then also for me now, having a Rolodex of people that I can call that I loved working with that are still looking for jobs and, and be like, Hey, I got another movie. I loved working with you. Like, let's do it <laughs> and, and create that really fun experience. You know, the, the best advice I got when I moved out to Hollywood was don't try to meet your heroes, meet your peers and become people's heroes. And like, you feel that energy out here where people are like, no, like, let's just do this. Like, let's just make cool stuff together. And you just get really talented people that are starting to make their own stuff. And it's really exciting. So how is uh, running a team of Hollywood types different and the same as running a team of engineers? That's so funny that <laughs> you asked that. Um. It's really similar, although I will say Hollywood creative folk are much more punctual <laughs> <laughs> because you have to be out here. <laughs> That's hilarious. My husband is an engineer and there's some cool research on um, uh, clock time versus event time and yeah. and that, you know, event time, which is how engineers function optimizes for quality whereas clock time optimizes for efficiency and you know you don't know how long the bug's going to take to work out you just got to work on it till it's done yeah and i think very often a lot of engineers that i've worked with use that as a vice but i think too you know it's a lot of a lot of the projects we work on are five ten year long projects you know it's going to be probably the next generation that's going to be launching this satellite and so there's a lack of urgency that you feel Whereas in Hollywood, we're all hustling. We're all just trying to get in as many projects as we can in a year so we can pay our paychecks and eat <laughs> and pay our bills and eat. And so um, so there's a little bit more. It's really fast. It still looks for that balance of efficiency and quality, but it is like, we got to get this done. We got to get this done. And um and I still always argue that I do think LA traffic is by design to weed out people who aren't able to show up to stuff on time. <laughs> it's an extra, it's an extra hurdle to just, if you can't yep. know to plan ahead. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. It really is. And there are plenty of people who are fully talented and just can't get jobs because they don't factor in traffic. <laughs> And LA traffic is different than what they grew up with, almost certainly. So almost it's a, certainly <laughs> so it's, a, it's an ability to adapt to change too. Yeah, yeah. You see, uh, where you're starting and where you're going is eight miles away. You don't plan for an hour and a half of travel, and yet in LA, wow, <laughs> wow, you almost you walk it faster. You get yeah. a bicycle. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so speaking of creating, you created a children's book last yes. year. So what, uh, I mean, I think you've kind of talked around this a lot, uh, but what appealed you about creating a book for kids in addition to everything else you're creating? Yeah, this was really fun. So um, we were approached as my friend Mar Rob Perlman, who's written a ton of really fun Star Trek books. Uh, I'm sorry, 
number one New York Times bestselling author, Rob Perlman. I'm obligated to say that because my friend was in New York number one. <laughs> I mean, that feels like the kind of thing you do want people to know about you. Yes, yes. Uh, and so him and I were sort of uh, given this opportunity to write a pair of children's books. And really, they're not even they're like baby board books. Um, and his is Star Trek, my first book of colors. And mine was Star Trek, my first book of space. So they're little companion books together. And for me, it's like, I really do, even though I'm pivoting professionally into storytelling as through TV writing and through film producing, I am doing a lot less science communication. So when I get these opportunities to continue that, I always take them up. And for me, it was really, it was a fun challenge. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever written, to be fair, is to write a space book for ages zero to two. Um, (laughs) But, uh, and, and also include a lot of Star Trek references, but I think it was really fun. I was very happy with it. So um, yeah, people can find it. It's been out. I think it came out in October and those two companion books. And what I discovered too, is that it's fun to read for kids. There's cool pictures. It's a nice board book. So it's, it's pretty durable, but on top of that, um, it's also for kids who are sort of like five to seven who are starting to read. There's a lot of challenging words in there that they might not have seen before, plus space, you know. So so kids are enjoying, little older kids are enjoying reading it too, which has been really fun. That's very cool. So you have been a guest at Starbase Indie twice in 2018 and 2019. So what did you like about Starbase Indie? I have to I have to ask. <laughs> What I love about Starbase Indie, it's not even like, it's love. Um, Because I was so not sure what to expect for a convention that's on a major holiday weekend. (laughs) And what I discovered is that Starbase Indie's core is really found family. And that's, I think, what I love the most about it, is it was a lot of people who are, uh, who go there to be with their family. And that you know, and maybe it's family they only see once a year at Starbase Indie. And you really get that sense and that feeling that this is a tight knit group of people. They are very welcoming, you know, so they're, you're happy to be one of them. Um, and it, that really is, that's the best way I can describe it. It's just a found family convention. Yeah, that we, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's certainly, someone asked me why I do what I do. And I said, this is how I cook Thanksgiving for my family. Yes. Put this event together. Yeah, that's fair. And that's how it feels. It's really, it's a really loving experience. I really enjoy it. So what are you working on next? So I mentioned the short film I'm doing now. So that's uh, called Identities and people can search for it. It's there's a landing page on Nebula. And if you subscribe to Nebula through that, um, I think it's like $30 a year or something, but you'll get like behind the scenes updates as we're making things. So I've got to plug that but it should be out by the end of the year. And then I'm continuing to work on Star Trek. So I've got that going for at least another year, which has been really fun. and It's very rewarding. And then, you know, I'm in a position right now where I'm just looking for my first TV staff writing job, which is probably the worst time in the industry to try to break into it right now. (laughs) It's a little tough out there. Um, But I'm in a good position to be able to do what I love and I'm just continuing to write and explore my own voice and explore my own stories. And I'm doing a lot less science communicating these days. I'm doing a lot less convention events, 
just because I really want to put that time and effort into setting myself up for sort of the next decade or so of working. <laughs> and, and that requires a lot of, a lot of that, but, but I'm really enjoying it. And I just, yeah, I want to thank you and, and all of the fans like of Star Trek and at conventions just for all the love and support people have given me. I was so worried that I was just going to become like this object of jealousy and hate. <laughs> people would try to poke at everything that I write and say and say I'm wrong and shouldn't have this job. And it couldn't be further from the truth. People have just been absolutely lovely, lovely and supportive. And I've been enjoying it a lot. That is awesome. And maybe if uh, maybe we can find a way to get uh, identities at Starbase India in November, even if you're doing fewer fewer <laughs> convention appearances, maybe we can continue to show your movies. Cause make an exception, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you know, and and it make sure it you know fits in, of course, with your strategy. But you know, I appreciate mm. that. No, for sure, <laughs> I would of course love to share it with Starbase Indie and and everyone. Excellent. Excellent. So where's the best pe place for people to find you online and signing up for Nebula through the identities page? Yep. Um, where else are you active? I'm mostly uh, just posting random stuff on Instagram these days. It's probably the easiest way to to randomly see what I'm up to, even if it's just what I'm cooking for dinner that night <laughs> <laughs> and posting sort of any events that I happen to be doing. Um, but yeah, so at Dr. Aaron Mack, D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C on Instagram, it's probably the best place. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me. I'm delighted to, you know, reconnect and uh, share what you're doing with, you know, you. The, our little corner of the world. And you have a lot of fans in Indianapolis. So Aww, thank you. Well, I hope to be back sometime soon. So thanks again. It was really great to see you. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.